And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who's like the beast? And who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life, the lamb that was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do bless your name, and we thank you that you speak through your word, both its reading and its preaching, and now we ask that your spirit would give illumination and understanding. For Christ's sake, amen. Don't normally... Use sports illustrations, sorry, one of the times I'm going to. There's something uh, spectacularly intriguing happening right now. For those that follow the sports world or the baseball world, you would know what's happening with the Houston Astros and the spectacular cheating scandal that's been going on. 
The Houston Astros got caught cheating, and not like a little cheating, a lot cheating. And what they had done is they had installed a camera, a secret camera, way in the far back of the stands that was zoomed in specifically on the catcher so that when he would make the signs for whatever pitch was going to be thrown, the camera would capture it. It would then be relayed to the dugout where a guy sitting would bang on a trash can according to the pitch so that the Houston Astros standing in the batter's box could listen and know that if there's no banging, it'll be a fastball, fast and fairly straight. If there's a banging, it's going to be a slower pitch that's going to fall some sort of way. And you know what they found? This is really interesting. The Astros found that if you knew what pitch was coming, baseball was a lot easier. (laughs) I mean, I'm not kidding. Like, when they would play away from home, they're a great team, but even playing away from home, they'd score, what, three runs? They played at home, they'd score like 12. They couldn't figure it out. It was like the best home field advantage ever. It was like, well, yeah, (laughs) because they knew what pitch was coming. It's amazing how much... Baseball is easier if you know what pitch is coming. And it's probably true for life, I guess, in many ways, too. It's amazing how much life is easier if you know what pitch is coming. In terms of our interaction with the devil, I think that is no less true. And you say, well, I mean, Pastor, my interaction with the devil, I don't interact with the devil. Well, you do, actually. Chapter 12 has laid that out for us, and 13 follows directly on the heels and continues the same concept. Chapter 12 introduces this really kind of gruesome portrait of the pregnant woman, who is the church, who is giving birth to the Christ child. And the the dragon, who is the devil, is waiting there to consume the baby. He's ready for a, a delicious little snack where he will eat the Christ child and destroy all of God's plans. Unfortunately for him, the the moment the child is born, the Lord whisks him away to heaven through death, resurrection, and ascension, where the child is then kind of sequestered away safely. Jesus reigns, and the devil cannot get to him. So he results to a bitter and hateful and angry strategy. The devil cannot kill the Christ child, no longer a child. So what will he do instead? He will kill his people. And so he goes to wage war against the church in all of her ages, in all of her various locations and people groups. He hates the church, and so he goes to battle against her. Whether you feel it or not, whether you realize it or not, you're currently in the middle of a cosmic battle between the devil and the people of God. Chapter 13 is going to lay out for us, I think, a number of ways that we can kind of see the tactics the devil is using. It's a way for us to kind of, in some ways, anticipate his pitch. So we know what he's going to do. Uh, Paul says it, so we're not caught unaware. Um, I mean, the New Testament says that we're not caught unaware. We're ready to look for what he's doing. First thing to note here is, interestingly, when the devil goes to war against the church, it is rarely done directly. 
Very rarely is it ever done directly. He begins in chapter 12 going to war with the church personally. It's the dragon versus the woman, but it gets complicated. He shoots a giant river of water out of his mouth. That's bizarre. The Lord protects her by having the ground open up and eat the river. That's even more bizarre. Okay, that's fine. The woman is taken away into safety. The Lord preserves the church. And so instead, the devil tries a slightly different approach. What happens in chapter 13 is we see the real serious combat begin, the warfare between the evil one and the people of God. And what is his mechanic to do so? Well, first, he's not even present. I think that's the thing that's the most intriguing is in a chapter describing how the devil wages war against the church. He's mentioned how many times? I mean, how many times has he mentioned? Did you catch it? He's mentioned uh, in verse 2 how the dragon gave his authority to the first beast. He's mentioned in verse 4 that when they worship the beast, they're actually worshiping the dragon. Yeah, and that's it. That's pretty much it. He's not really mentioned anymore. He's, He's lingering in the shadows. He's in the backdrop for the entire conversation, but it's very rarely ever conducted in this direct fashion. Him personally with the people of God. That's why when people are like, well, the devil made me do it. Yeah, that's funny. I hope that you never meet him personally until the last day. But you see this actual pattern of him using, we call them proxies, using go-betweens, using other things to accomplish his purposes. That's the pattern of Scripture from the very beginning. Think about it. He, he shows up, even using the form of a serpent, to deceive Eve. Now, that's pretty one-to-one. That, I mean, that is literally the queen of creation having a conversation with the devil himself. He succeeds. She falls, and he disappears from the story. I mean, just the next bit, we find out that brother's killing brother, which is, again, certainly an assault on the promise that God has made that the seed of the woman would produce the Christ child. He's pushing for that murder to take place, but done so from the backdrop, from the setting, from the background, so you don't see him. I mean, think even, if you're really going to be technical, think about when he jumps even to Job, where you find out that he's asked God permission to destroy Job, and even the way he does that, he's using a giant wind hits the house on the four corners and the house collapses. He's using other things to accomplish his purposes, his intermediaries. I think this is extremely important for Christians today in the West to remember because as our science has improved, our kind of constant apprehension of the supernatural has decreased. You can talk to Dwight and Dorothy about this, ask them all the stories that they had in Africa. They had, the supernatural was constantly in front of them constantly interacting with folks that were either demon-possessed or things of the sort like that. They have miraculous stories of the way the Lord answered prayers in fantastic ways. It was easy to see. But here in the West, our, our science is so high, not just in the West, any developed country. Our science is so high, we've lost kind of a connection with the supernatural. 
And so we forget about it. We don't think about it. And the byproduct of that is that we don't think of ourselves as being caught in any sort of real sort of combat of any kind. I mean, if, think really kind of be honest with ourselves. If, if part of our new member interview, when you met with a session, if we asked you to describe kind of what is Christianity all about, not what is the gospel, we're going to ask you that, but what's the Christian life? Well, people would say, well, it's to help me be holy, which is true. Or it's to help me make it through the day, which is true. Or it's how to live a better life, which is true. Or how to defeat sin, which again is true. How to know God, that's the gospel, absolutely that's true. How long would it take us to go before we said, it's so I understand the combat I'm stuck in? I bet you, being honest, I bet you, if we, I bet you we'd never hear that. I bet you that answer would never show up in our new member for anybody in the church prior to the sermon series. <laughs> Which is the amazing thing because that's one of the primary ways that Paul defines Christianity. What does it mean to be a Christian to Paul? It means that you are fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil every day, every minute, every hour whether you like it or not. Now, there's good news. Jesus wins. The whole war is already decided. We're just doing the cleanup skirmishes at the end. But that we are absolutely involved in combat. I suspect that one of those dynamics that we have happening here is that we forget we're involved in the combat largely because we cannot see the combatants. It's such a a guerrilla warfare that we we don't look at it and go, oh, Islam. There it is. Hinduism, Baha'i, love of money, love of self, extreme, radical, insane commitment to one political party and one political party only without the ability to consider other ideas. Pick any of the isms of identity politics today. And look at what we're doing with all of these things is we're taking the large kind of big picture cosmic ideas and trying to strip the supernatural out of them so we forget that we're in the middle of conflict. Which I'm going to contend is absolutely what the devil wants us to do. He wants us to forget that he's at work. Again, I've been highlighting this point throughout the Bible. With He shows up at the beginning in Genesis 3 with the fall, which creates the entire problem throughout all of humanity. He shows up in the Gospels at the climax of kind of human history, the, the problem being solved. He shows up in the last time, the end time, the last day, when the problem is fully kind of the, you know, the denouement, the, the, the resolution of all of the conflict. Why would we think he would not be involved in the rest of the story? And I'll be honest, the Reformed Church, we tend to stink at this. Truth be told. Largely because I think we've seen some branches of the church that have gone so crazy on it that we've kind of swung the pendulum to the other side. It's like, well, there's no such thing as spiritual warfare. There's no such thing as spiritual persecution. And I'm sure there's a devil, but he's sitting somewhere totaling his thumbs. Laughable, but... Not in a good way. 
We never pause to consider that we are currently involved in a cosmic battle, and yet we're consistently surprised why there are casualties everywhere. I mean, do we not have a better excuse for the history of this specific church body than just people are dumb? I mean, I don't really like that answer, but do we not have a better excuse? I would say absolutely we do. We have a great enemy that's seeking the destruction of all of the churches and this church particular. Of course we have that. No wonder we have casualties. No wonder we have difficulties. No wonder we have an enemy. Satan fights, but he fights this covert, this, this hidden kind of, again, guerrilla warfare from this, the background. Now here he's going to use two specific beasts in this passage, the way they're described. I want to highlight specifically what he uses those beasts for. Each beast accomplishes something a bit different. The first beast shows up out of the sea, and it is ugly. Right? It's, not, it's not a handsome fellow. Shows up with ten horns, seven heads, ten diadems on the horns, blasphemous names on the heads. Wow, that is a picture, isn't it? It is ugly. And it's got some sort of weird tattoo of just blasphemous things written all over it. Yikes. Verse 2, John's trying to describe it. He's using Daniel 7 here, not entirely sure. And I don't get overly precise with all of this stuff, but you get the impression. Oh, yeah, by the way, it had um, it looked like a leopard, had feet like a bear, had a mouth like a lion's mouth, which is really interesting. It's singular mouth, but there's multiple heads. So you go figure. The grammar itself doesn't even make sense. Uh, a mouth like a lion's mouth, and it has all kinds of power. This thing is hideous. It's ugly. It's designed to be ugly. It's designed to be intimidating. It's designed to be scary. And in fact, actually, it's so big and powerful and scary that the devil himself invests it with his authority so that it can oppress people and scare them into not obedience, but we'll call submission. His entire relationship with humanity is so wonderfully summed up in verse 4. Who's like the beast? Who can fight against it? They don't love him. They're not excited to know him. They're scared of the overwhelming power of the other side. It's interesting how many times, again, talking conversations I've had with, with non-Christians along the way, when I can get to a serious sort of conversation with them to see how many of them live in just a constant state of fear. That something's out to get them. Like, well, yeah, that's exactly what's happening. The devil is waging war on all people made in the image of God. That's all humans. And in doing so, he is their enemy. Of course, you should be afraid. Who can fight against it? The beast is given the ability to speak proud and blasphemous words. He's given the ability to oppress those who are against him. He's even given the ability for a season to to conquer the saints and to destroy some of them. This is the portrait of the big, strong powerful evil that is arrayed against the people of God. 
I suspect this is the type that we see the most clearly in, in uh, governments, in false religions, in those gigantic kind of cosmic big picture forces of evil that are antithetical. They are opposed to Christianity and opposed in such a way that they seek their destruction. You don't know what this looks like in meat and potatoes. What does this look like in real life? Don't do it around the kids, but go read up on Boko Haram. Right? Go read Boko Haram and their relationship with Christianity. How they continue to do terrible thing after terrible thing after terrible thing to Christians specifically because they're Christians. And oh yeah, by the way, they love to, to use the kids. So I said, don't read it around your kids. It's terrible. Go read at what happens in so many of those pagan governments that reject the name of Christ and how they treat the Christians, the people of God who disappear at night, taken to gulags or whoever knows where else. It's this open and oppressive militant reaction against God's people. And praise God, most of uh, U.S. history, this hasn't been as active of a presence here. But man, we're beginning to see it, aren't we? I mean, you want to see what this looks like today. Have Have a church publicly in the national media stand up and say that homosexuality is a sin. Or that the Bible says clearly women shouldn't be preachers. Watch what happens. Watch the firestorm that follows. Opposed militantly to the people of God. Now again, interestingly, it's still done in in a mediated fashion. It's not the devil himself. It's not like, you know, Satan sets up camp in Hollywood and, you know, is starring in his own movies. He's got little minions to do all of those things, but to do so in an oppressive and overt and loud sort of fashion. It doesn't stop there, though, as you might guess. He's very smart. He's diversified. Second beast shows up, and it is the opposite of the first. The first is hideous. It's gruesome. The second one is lovely. It's an adorable little thing. It comes out of the earth, so the first is a sea critter, this is a, a land critter. It has two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It looks like cute and safe and, and nice and, and pleasant and desirable on the outside, and then it opens its mouth, and you're like, whoa, wow. Wasn't expecting that to come out like that. It has the voice of the dragon. This one is interesting, though, because its mission is a little bit different than the first beast. The first beast is the big image. It's the strong, it's the mighty, it's the kind of thrust into the public eye version of what the devil's doing. This one is the far more subtle, devious, quiet, hidden, creeping sort of efforts. Look at what this beast does. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. He's still related to the devil and connected, exercising his power. It does, verse 13, it performs great signs. 
It, it fraudulently tries to replicate the things that would make you believe it's good and true and right and powerful. It fraudulently tries to replicate the things that would make you believe this is a good thing. Even so much so that in verse 15, there's an idol that's made. And this second beast is given the ability to, like ventriloquist, throw its voice to make it look like the idol itself has come alive. This beast, well, the first beast was all about power and strength. This beast is all about lies. All about lies. Using those voices, those quiet and sneaking little lies to lead us into believing things that are on the wrong side. And I know the reality is I'm preaching on the devil, preaching from Revelation, and most of us are like, this is probably more interesting than most of the sermons that you preach. Uh, But it's probably less practical because I can't understand anything that you're talking about. In the sense of I never experience any of these things. This is not what my life feels like. And I would suggest um, that's, that's not true. Your experience confirms this. You just don't have that category. And that's my whole point here. Let's just put a test to it. Married folk, give me the exact hour of the week that you are most likely going to be fighting. Is it not in the car on the way here? I mean, if you had to pick an hour that's the most common, would it not be in the car on the way here? Give me the hour of the week that your children are most likely to lose their pants and shoes and not be able to find any clothing anywhere in the house. Is it not 10 minutes before you're planning to walk out to go to church? Actually, better yet, it's one minute before. And you're like, what are you doing? Why are you naked? Like now, it's church time. Let's put it into like just more really pointed. When I was a youth pastor, I taught Sunday school before worship, and I I basically preached. I do the same thing here that I did there, um, just a lot faster. Um, but it was intriguing because uh, periodically I wasn't involved in the church calendar. I wasn't involved in leadership. I just ran the youth group and it was a large youth group, but there would be some Sundays where after I finished preaching, I'd be like, what on earth is happening? Like, I think I should just retire right now. Like I'm done with this. I have a fist fight happening in the front row. I got a couple that's trying to do who knows what, and I have to stop them how many times in Sunday school? What on earth is happening? Has everybody gone crazy or evil at the same time? And I'd walk out, and I would just, I, would, I mean, it's only 100 yards from the youth room to the sanctuary, and I'd just talk to Nikki. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tear my hair out. And after a while, we figured out she'd just start smiling, start laughing. And we'd step into the sanctuary, and there'd be the communion table. Every single time, it was communion. In fact, actually, it got to the point where we could predict the communion schedule because we're not a church that had it quite as regularly as this one, where it's always the third Sunday. You could predict the communion schedule by how poorly Sunday school went. If I had a kid show up late or throw up in the middle of Sunday school or who knows what, well, guess what? I can guarantee in about an hour we're going to be feasting on Jesus and I'm going to have a really hard time being focused. Actually, let's put it a little bit even more particular. 
how many weeks this year has my entire family been healthy on Saturday night or Sunday morning? I think the correct answer is one. Nikki started throwing up last night at 8.30. Yep. Last week it was one of my children. The week before it was a different one of my children. Everybody's like, your family's the sickest family in the world. No, we're actually well from Monday through Friday. (laughs) I'm not kidding. No, no, I'm I'm really not kidding. Like, we're literally only sick Saturday night and Sunday through Sunday afternoon. Why do you think that is? So that my family can't participate in worship together. And you know what? We're an easy family to pick off because when I'm here, Nikki's a single mom. Your experience confirms this to be true. You know it. You just have categorized it incorrectly. These lies the second beast tells you know them. You've experienced them. It looks like this. A good and godly member of this church, by your understanding, does this thing. Woo, it's bad, right? You look at it and go, oh man, they're being hateful. I can't believe they would do X, whatever it is. I mean, look at that. Look, they're, they're being wrong to me. They're being rude to me. They're undoing everything I've already done. I can't believe them. Meanwhile, that person, if you actually were to ask them, that situation is not in any way accurate. Right? They're doing something completely different. It's something completely other. And you know how I know that? Because no one has that conversation in this church more than I do. Where I get to talk to both parties, and one party's like, I can't believe whoever. They're being hateful. They're doing such and such, and it's evil. And I go talk to the other person, and they're like, yeah, I was, you know, I had an upset stomach. I'm, what? What is going on? Because what is the, the second beast so good at is he's good at planting those little lies that creep into our minds. And sow the seeds of bitterness and hate and unforgiveness. Because he is a minion of the devil and he wants us to look like him. There are a few things that I have watched sour a church more effectively in their faith, hope, and love than these little quiet lies. Weirdly enough, suffering a lot of times doesn't do it. In fact, actually terrible suffering sometimes doesn't do it. Those little lies, man, that get us our feelings hurt that, oh, let our bitterness come out. Woo, well, then that, mm, man, yeah, there we go. You see, I'm, I'm not just talking about this from the perspective of trying to figure out how to make your life better. Because actually the fourth thing that the devil does is why the other three kind of make so much sense and why they are so incredibly dangerous. You see, he's been working through others. He uses minions along the way. He sometimes uses this loud, oppressive, argumentative, dangerous, fighting, you know, in-your-face sort of style through others. Sometimes he uses this hidden, quiet, guerrilla warfare filled with lies sort of approach. But the key thing that unites all of them is that he is creating a mockery and a parody of God himself. 
You see, actually, the way that chapter 13 is laid out is this is a parody and a mockery of the Trinity. Satan has set himself up to be the father. He's trying to parallel himself with God the Father Almighty. And look at what happens after that. He has the first beast come up with whom he gives all of his authority. Look at verse 2, the end of it. And to this, the dragon gave his power, his throne, and his great authority. Man, that sounds very much like Jesus' relationship with God the Father. And if it weren't clear enough, look at what follows after that. One of the heads seemed to have a mortal wound that had healed. It looked like a creature that had been killed but hadn't died. And why is that so significant? Because how is Jesus described all throughout this book? The lamb that was slain. So now you have the devil setting up the lamb that was slain against his beast that looks slain. But isn't. It's fraudulent. It's why his whisperings, uh, his blasphemies become so dangerous. You think about it, this is the exact same tactic he took with Eve in the garden. Surely God didn't say. Setting up a parallel faith, a parallel Christianity, a parallel truth that seems good, that sounds good, but is a mockery of God's good grace. The second beast is even clearer, as if the first one wasn't bad enough. The second one is even worse. This one is a parallel for the Holy Spirit. And you look at actually what it does at verse 12, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Realistically, if you changed the nouns in that, you could almost take that out of the Psalms. Almost. This beast's task is to spread the lies that would produce the worship all around the world. Not good worship, obviously, the evil kind. And his task is to be the authenticator. The same way that the Holy Spirit provided signs and miracles in the New Testament to authenticate Christ. This one is doing it, but he doesn't have real power, so he's lying. With a false fire, with a false voice, with a false idol. And in doing so, verse 16, it causes everybody, small and great, poor and rich, slave and free, all of them to fall prey to the evil one. Because they listened. It's a mockery of Christianity. And this is the part, this is why all of this is so incredibly important. Again, we talk about baseball. It's a lot easier when you know what pitch is coming. Interacting with the devil is a lot easier when you know what pitch is coming. You already know exactly what his tactics are and how he's going to interact with you. He's going to use other intermediaries so that you don't immediately get suspicious. Because if the devil showed up right now, we would all be fairly bothered. But if his minions showed up, well, we might not even notice. They might already be here. We don't know. He's going to try to scare us in some situations and be loud and brazen to push us so that we get scared and don't fight back. And then he's going to lie and trick us into things, all of which is an attempt to pervert our Christianity. To pervert the nature of the Godhead, to pervert what a good and godly Christian is supposed to be. 
You realize that's the nature of the temptations that he actually even gives Jesus himself. It's an attempt to pervert good and godly Christianity to even Christ Jesus himself. Hey, look, you want to be king over all of creation? I can offer that to you. All you have to do is bow down to me and I will make you the king of creation. Which sounds really good, particularly considering what he's actually offering is a way to become that messianic king without the cross. And boy, that sounds marvelous, doesn't it? A way to rule and reign but never suffer? It's parallel to Christianity, but it's not quite right. And the result of it, obviously, if Jesus had fallen prey for it, we all would be dead. And I would suggest this is, particularly in the West, one of the great, great, great dangers that we have. And I'm going to be honest with you. I know some in the room here always get frustrated when I talk about false teaching and how big of a deal it is. And I would say, I love you. I'm proud of you. You're wrong. I say that tongue-in-cheek, obviously. You think about it, though, all of the letters, which Dwight was talking about in Sunday school, how many of them are there? 21? All but one of them are written in specific response to false teaching. That's actually really staggering if you think about it. Because Paul and John and Jude and Peter all understood in some fashion the great danger for the church is that she ceases to be the church and becomes something like the church. You say, well, I don't even understand what that means, Michael. Well, no, you do. You just, again, wrong categories. You have it in your head. What it does is it takes good and godly truth, true truth, and it blends it with falsehood and becomes something new. I'll give you an example. God loves his people and cares for them perfectly. And he wants them to be wealthy. Right, the first part is true. God loves his people and he cares for them perfectly. That is 100% true. Psalm 121 clearly argues it. And he wants us to be wealthy. That is pure paganism at its core. You put those two things together, you marry them into a new entity. It's called the prosperity gospel. And it suddenly becomes the greatest doctrine that the most number of Christians in America believe. You realize if you pick a person who is a Christian off the street, that is the view they hold. And it is a perfect blending of paganism and biblical truth. That Jesus loves his people and he's going to take them to heaven with him forever because they're good. <laughs> now, that first part, that's the gospel. Jesus loves his people. God loves his people. He's going to take them to heaven. Uh, They're going to take them to life eternal forever and ever. But because Christ is good, not because we're good. That perfect blending of something true and something terribly false to produce something completely wrong. Again, it's the tactic with Eve. Surely God didn't say it quite like that. You think, oh, this doesn't happen today. Well, no, actually, I mean, again, I've, I've used illustration before, but when I, growing up, when I'm in this area, but growing up in the, I guess, late 80s and early 90s, one of the largest Christian bands that wrote worship music for the church, ordained pastors, 
all of whom denied the Trinity. They're one of the largest selling Christian bands of that era whose music was sung in more churches than just about anybody else. And they deny the Trinity. You tell me if that's a problem. Right now, I mean, it's one of the great problems we're looking at the Western churches. We're looking at a church with perhaps worse theology than any other church in human history. And the sad part is that it's willful. It's willful because we're listening to his lies and we're ingesting them and we're believing them and we're asking for more. Instead of going back and trying to get that true truth out of the scriptures so we understand who God is and what he's doing. You see, life is a lot easier when you know what the devil's pitch is going to be. It's because of this that I'm going to ask as your pastor, most of you, not all of you, but most of you, I'm going to ask that you do four things specifically in response to a sermon like this. First, I'm going to ask that you pray and that you specifically pray against these things that the devil is doing. Pray for my family. Pray that we can come to church together. Pray for the the efforts of the devil and his minions to be foiled. We do this Wednesday night. Tom and I do this Friday morning. I do this throughout the week. This is what we do. But please, as a body, can we continue to pray against the works of the devil? Secondly, and I would say just as important to me, which is weird to say something is just as important to prayer, um, is I'd like to just be acknowledged, be upfront. The danger of these little lies and miscommunications in this body is absolutely massive. Most of you have not kind of fully realized, I guess, or haven't thought through this. We are no longer a small church. In fact, actually, if you're going to take kind of the national averages or the PCA averages, we are now on the above average size, which is crazy to think about. For those that have been here a long time, to think about this church that should never still be alive is on the large end of the spectrum now, both in our denomination and in our country. And as we continue to grow and as we continue to expand and as we continue to add people and as we continue to add a building out there, if it ever dries up and stops raining... The big, big dangers that I worry about are those, those little situations where person A gets their feelings hurt because they think person B did X. Person B believes they did Y, something completely different. But the result of it is that first person, they, they harbor bitterness, they harbor frustration, they harbor resentment, which will eventually, all three of those will eventually work their way out in gossip. Because honestly, once you get bitter like that, you can't keep it to yourself. Bitterness feels best when it's shared. (laughs) And what I worry about is that we create rifts in the church because of these little lies that we let get roots in our place. And I'll be honest with you, I love this church and I want to see her do well. I'm happy to give my life for her. Can we not do that, please? Can we not wreck her that way? One of the obvious easy ways that we know. So what do you do with that? One, first, if you can forgive and forget, please do that immediately. Actively forget what the other person has done. 
If you cannot forgive and forget, you need to go talk to that person. You need to talk to me so we can get this cleaned up. We do not want the root of bitterness growing in this church. It will kill us. Third, teach the children. That's an odd application. No, it's not actually. Remember, the, the great task that the devil is trying to do with all of this is he's trying to create a false Christianity. The best way to combat it is to teach the little ones real Christianity so they grow up knowing it all along. Which means we should not be short Sunday school teachers, we should not be short nursery workers ever. And I'm actually going to pick an actual pointed person here. For those of you in the room that are further down the age span than I am, please do not squander your experience by keeping it to yourself. Please do not squander your expertise by keeping it to yourself. Please do not squander your wisdom by keeping it to yourself. Please share it with our children. They need good and godly people like all of you to teach them. I ask that as a parent. My kids need you. They need your good and godly understanding of the world so they can see what true Christianity looks like. And then lastly, fourthly, in, in terms of responses to this, One of the great ways that the devil does this, particularly with the second beast here, is is through temptation. And uh, I I recognize most of us, when we hear that word temptation, we immediately kind of overwhelm with guilt because we're like, well, we sin so quickly and we feel bad because sin is bad. And that's true, it is bad. But I would challenge us to think about temptation as a little bit different sort of thing. It is a tactic wherein we are inviting the devil into our midst. When you allow temptation to kind of just stew in your life, what you're doing at that point is saying to the devil, look, I know I'm supposed to be at war with you. Would you mind coming and having a cup of tea with me? I'm sure you're not that bad of a fella. I mean, I know the whole Adam and Eve thing is inconvenient, but it's a cup of tea. How bad can it be? And I'm going to contend, if you begin to think about temptation from that perspective, it's probably going to change your relationship with sin just a little bit. Because I'm going to be honest with you, I want nothing to do with the devil. I don't trust him, and I don't trust myself around him. So the best tactic I can have is to keep him far, far away and to stay close to King Jesus. Keep him at arms reach way off and stay close to King Jesus so he protects me. I would ask that we do the same in our private lives as well as our corporate lives. That we work hard to push temptation away so we're not inviting him into our midst. Because you have to realize we're, we're in a church ever, all the statistics say they're wrong but all the statistics say that right now the American church is in decline. And you have churches like this one that have been healthy and growing consistently for over a decade. In that sense, statistically, people would say we're a unicorn, and it's only a matter of time until people start coming and realizing and things are going to change. It'll get much more complicated. Because the more the devil understands what we're doing right, the more he's going to come bringing his difficulty. We need to be ready. Prayer. Clear communication so that we're confessing sin and reconciling any problems, teaching our children early and avoiding temptation. It's not going to fix everything, but my goodness, what a start. I said it earlier baseball's easier when you know the pitch, life is easier when you know the pitch, you still got to swing. 
Those four ways are what I'm arguing we need to take a swing at. Because again, here's the beautiful thing. Jesus wins. That's the whole background, the backdrop of chapter 13. Jesus wins. All of this authority, the devil and his minions, it's all subordinate to Jesus. Even I've caught it in the language, it's what they're allowed to do. And the center point of this entire chapter is the end of verse 10. All of this is here as a call for endurance and the faith of the saints. All of these, these efforts from the devil are ultimately going to be conquered by Christ Jesus. Amen, glory, hallelujah. But it's also preparing us for endurance and faith. May Jesus be blessed and glorified in this place. May we fight hard in that battle that we're part of. Even if we don't want to be, we're involved in it. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you, we honor you. Thank you for Christ Jesus. Oh God, forgive us for sin and for flirting with temptation. Oh Lord, defend us from evil, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.